Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. In previous episodes of Deep Breath In, we've covered overdiagnosis, medicalization, approaches to testing, the ins and outs of explanations, and other issues facing overburdened GPs with limited time available to treat. And an issue that brings all of these themes together is PSA-based prostate cancer testing. Drawing on emerging evidence that suggests MRI and other secondary tests could decrease harms associated with overdiagnosis and overtreatment of prostate cancer, a recent feature in the BMJ asks whether the UK is really ready to roll out prostate cancer screening. A paired BMJ analysis article collates international data and argues that models of PSA testing which rely on shared decision-making, including the UK's Informed Choice Program, represent the worst of approaches to detecting prostate cancer. Instead, Andrew Vickers and colleagues argue that PSA-based early detection of prostate cancer should either be done through a comprehensive, risk-based national program or PSA testing should be strictly limited only to men with symptoms. To flesh this out a little more and to understand the ramifications for general practice, we spoke with experts Andrew Vickers and Sam Mariel. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ, here as always with Tom and Navjoit. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jenny. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP and a clinical editor for the BMJ. Good to be here. Thanks. And hi, Navjoit. Hi, everyone. I'm Navjoit Larder. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Well, thanks so much. I'm really interested in our conversation today and understanding your perspectives on prostate cancer screening in the UK and to listen to Andrew and Sam. Tom, is this something that comes up often for you in practice? Do you find yourself having lengthy conversations about well, yeah. PSA testing? Well, yeah, I should have said I'm, I'm currently working in deepest Surrey with um, was a high high population load of men in their sixties and above. So a lot of people um, come in asking about PSA testing. <laughs> Jenny, you look horrified. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so this is like, yeah, they everyday stuff really is um, kind of have my PSA. Often there's a sort of add-on to something else in a consultation, uh, which makes it even harder to have a, you know, a proper discussion about it. Absolutely. Um, and how about you, Navjoit? Yeah, same, although not so different population, <laughs> I would say. Well, East London, Navjoit, you know, different. Well, different West, Lon- West London, so not a million miles away. But um, just a, maybe a little bit more more mixed. But um, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, you kind of know. You know the sort of uh, you know the the ins and outs of PSA screening and, and what to sort of discuss in a consultation. But um, I'm aware that you know thing things have been changing in terms of what happens downstream of a PSA test, and so really interested to get in this com into this conversation today because I think um I think it does raise some interesting issues for how maybe how we approach discussing a test and going through that conversation about um sort of informed choice. Absolutely. And I'm curious, um, 
for both of you, in which ways has the recent advocacy and kind of promotion of PSA testing in the UK impacted your practice? Do you find more people coming in asking about this or is this still a conversation you largely have to initiate? Uh, I suppose we had, um, it wasn't that long ago, um, a very, quite well-known TV presenter died of prostate cancer. It's a big, big news story. And it, it, like we see with, with other things, you, you get it seems to be that you get more people coming in asking when when those sorts of things happen. Um, but I think the most common one for me is, uh, you know, my friend, you know, has just been diagnosed with prostate cancer and I thought I'd better, better get checked. Um, it's always hard to know, isn't it, when you're seeing just your your patients, whether the, the peaks and troughs are related to like other factors or just, just chance, I think, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Similar, similar here. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think the sort of frequency with which I've seen people has changed. Um, but you do, I, it does that you tend to be these kind of little, um, peaks of, of seeing people. I will say what I haven't seen and what, uh, you know, I've always, I'm always struck by is, you know, we, we're aware of certain at-risk at groups, but black men uh, particularly. And I have to say, I don't often um, have consultations and I, and I work in areas where, you know, there is, uh, black, black men are part of the population, the practice population. And so I'm always kind of quite struck by that, that, you know, um, actually who's coming in to request, request those tests. I'm so glad you said that because this is part of the um, recent analysis article that I mentioned, which I find so interesting um, and which I think is really resonant across a number of countries and healthcare systems, which is that in countries where there is a screening model that's based on shared decision-making and, you know, a a person coming in with questions, engaging their physician in a conversation about whether or not to have PSA testing. Um, across all of these countries, there are very high rates of PSA testing in men who are the least likely to experience the harms of overtreatment or overdiagnosis. Um, and so Andrew will tell us a little bit more about that later, but essentially men who are older than screening age or men who demographically, just as you were saying, Navjoy actually have lower risk. Right. Well, to jump right in and to hear a little bit more about why a shared decision-making approach to PSA testing could represent the worst of both worlds, I spoke with Andrew Vickers. So let's have a listen. Uh, so my name is Andrew Vickers, and I'm uh, on faculty in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, my main area of interest is in prostate cancer, which is the topic of our podcast today. Fantastic. Thanks. So tell me a little bit about your motivation for writing the analysis paper, uh, which we've mentioned already, um, and which is doing you know, really well in terms of getting readership and interest. So I have two big interests. One is prostate cancer and one is decision-making. So I do a lot of work on prostate cancer screening. I've written papers on how you screen and I've been involved in the development of a, a secondary biomarker for prostate cancer. So that's all on one side. Uh, on the other side, I've been studying decision-making and how, how do you make decisions. I sort of put those two together by thinking about what's going on with PSA screening right now. Mm -hmm. If you look at it decision theoretically, what you're saying is, you know, what we say in our paper is there's three things you can do. You can say, 
let's implement a screening program. Uh, let's not have any screening. Basically, say to men, don't you? You can't get PSA unless you know you're a urologist for some problem. Or we can do what most countries have done, which is say, well, we're not going to do a screening program, but if you really want the PSA, you can get it. And in the UK, they call that the shared decision-making or the informed decision-making, informed concerns approach or something like that. Um, so what you've got to do is think through what the consequences of those would be. And I, I'm to I totally understand why if I was sitting on a committee and as someone who you know, knows a lot about prostate cancer screening, I can say, yeah, you know, the evidence isn't where we'd like it to be. And, you know, it's it's really a bit of a toss-up whether it does more good than harm. So I totally understand that decision, but what are the consequences? And we don't just have to look in the UK for this. We can look across high-income countries. So I don't know, let's just choose a, a country at random, France. So their policy is there's no national screening program, but PSA is available after shared decision-making. What are the consequences is very, very high rates of PSA testing in all the wrong men. So the highest rate of testing in France, PSA testing is men over 70. Uh, at least half of men over 70 have had a test. And uh, about one in five men aged over 70 have more than three tests over three years. Um, in Germany, 75% of men over the age of 55 have been tested. And, all, you know, if you take nationally, if you count every PSA test done, about half of them are in men aged 70 and over. And I, I could go on and on and I could tell you what the, the UK figures were and so on and so forth. But, you know, the, the key thing is that PSA testing does not work in men 70 and over. The randomized trials are very clear about that. It's mm -hmm. not, and when I say does not work, very specifically, the hazard ratio does not include clinically significant benefit. And we also know that these are the men most likely to be harmed because the harms of PSA screening is overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And the older you are, the more likely it is that you will die of something else before you die of your prostate cancer. So we've made this very sensible decision based on the best evidence from the randomized trials. It doesn't quite meet our standards, so we're not going to implement a national screening program. We're going to do this other thing. Okay, what are the consequences? They're not good. So right now, um, I, as I said, I think it, it would be better to say no screening at all than um, screening in the way that we're doing it. You know, no PSA. But that's going to upset a lot of people, right? <laughs> You know, a lot of, yeah, it's very, even moving to shared decision making upset a lot of people, right? From like, where's my annual PSA to what? I have to discuss this with you? Yeah, and the, the prostate cancer organizations, you know. And so, if, um, on the other hand, if we've got to say now we're rolling out a screening program, we've got to find a particular set of money to do that that we've got to attribute to it. And then we're taking on the response. We, you know, so someone can can point a finger at you. So it is actually much easier for everybody just to keep the status quo because they don't have to make a decision. Mm -hmm. I think in the UK, people are famous for not having to actually make a decision, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but that's, that's the problem is in not making this decision, in abdicating our responsibility as researchers and policymakers to the doctor and the patient, right? So, you know, I, I mean, just compare you and me, right? You know tons of things about and a treatment of child illnesses that I don't know, obviously, because that's what happens. Debatable, but yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know as, as a general. 
But your knowledge of, of prostate cancer screening is minuscule compared to mine because that's what I study as a researcher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, compare that to the average guy, my knowledge is way better. But I'm saying, oh, no, 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 no. It's not up to me to make the decision. It's for you to do it. Right? I mean, that, to me, that's an abdication of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think that you know, we've, we've got to stop abdicating responsibility and we've got to own up to the consequences of doing that. And the consequences of doing that is a lot of PSA testing, a lot of overdiagnosis, a lot of overtreatment, and very questionable benefit. Um, I did also want to maybe in our last few minutes here circle or back around to this point about um, you know how you know shared decision making itself as a process um, is flawed, and I totally take your point about you need to look at the impact of that kind of policy choice. But I wonder if you kind of in thinking through this and decision theory, if you had any thoughts about. You know, why Why does shared decision-making get it so wrong? Right. So, well, let's pull out two different things, right? One is mm-hmm. the process of shared decision-making, if that is in itself a good thing, which I think it mm-hmm. is, and whether mm-hmm. you should base an entire screening policy on <laughs> shared decision-making, which I don't think is the right thing to do, right? Uh-huh. So, Important uh, distinction. It's a really important distinction. In fact, <laughs> um, I, I think one, one professor said, well, I'm glad you agree with us that informed choice policy is the best way to go. And I said, no, I think informed choice is part of it, but that's not the basis on which the whole policy rests. Um, So, um, yeah, look, there's a couple of things there. I think one of the interesting points we tried to make in our paper is that PSA screening isn't one thing. It's not, Mm -hmm. should you take 325 milligrams of aspirin, right? Because there's um, 325 milligrams of aspirin is 325 milligrams of aspirin, but you can do screening in all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And and one of the things that we talked was talked about and not specifically in the paper would be what if we had shared decision making about alcohol use and how it would go is well here are the pros and here are the cons right it's pros is you know tastes good it's very social relaxes you the cons are it can cause all sorts of illnesses and addiction you make a choice right that's not what we do what we say is if you do choose to drink drink in moderation and there's something very comparable with PSA testing is if you do want to do PSA testing, do it in moderation, right? Do it right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've actually written about the shared decision-making process. And it's more about thinking through behavior than it is sort of a, a preference-based choice. So shared decision, I mean, where shared decision-making mm-hmm. comes from is patient preference. So you, you know, rather than I'm making the decision for you, well, I don't know what's important to you. So let's discuss what's important to you. You know, mm-hmm. uh, do you want this operation for your back pain? Right? Well, okay. Like, how do you feel? Some people are terrified about surgery, right? Um, and, uh, you know, for other p- people, playing sports is so important to them that they'll do anything to get back onto the grid. So that's why we do shared decision-making. Mm-hmm. Well, in prostate cancer, we're not talking about something they're going through now. We're talking about something that may happen 15, 20 mm-hmm. years in the future. Mm-hmm. So we're saying to a man, if you, and this is completely true, and this is completely rational, that if he engages in a PSA screening program, he may end up unable to have sex, right? erectile dysfunction. 
Um, but that's going to happen in, say, 17 years' time when he's going through the PSA screening program and then gets prostate cancer and then gets treated and as a result of his surgery. So we're saying to a man at 50, imagine you had erectile dysfunction at 67. How would you feel about that, right? Well, you know, he might have erectile dysfunction at 67 anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, one of the, uh, you know, in, in the early days of decision-making theory, one of the big proponents who was very involved in generating the field is saying, don't ask patients to imagine states they haven't been in. Mm. <laughs> right? You can't, that's a really hard thing to do. And that's exactly, we're not only, only asking patients to do that, but we're asking them to do that many, many years in the future. That's why our shared, so we, we published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, our version of shared decision-making was very simple, which is the major harm from prostate cancer is over-treatment. So how would you feel about being diagnosed with a cancer and it didn't need to be treated? And, mm. you know, your wife and your, your mom and your kids were all telling you, oh, you've got cancer, that's terrible. You had to walk around every day waking up, you, know, you knew that you had cancer, but it wasn't being treated. If that's something you're fine with, then you're a good candidate for screening. Um, I remember doing this with a GP, actually. He was like, but then what would happen? And I'd have to get a PSA test. And then what would the results? And then I'd have to wait for that. I'm like, you know what? It sounds like you having cancer that wasn't treated would make your life a living hell. And yeah. he said, yes. And, and I said, and that means you would get good chance you would get treated for a cancer that didn't need treatment. You know, this is, it sounds like PSA screening isn't for you. So that was our approach for screening. But that has to happen in the context of changing medical practice, right? And that's why we talk mm -hmm. about a comprehensive risk-adapted screening program. If we're going to just say, oh, you've got cancer, you know, and then people get shuffled into the, the health system. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany is a really good example of this, is, you know, despite all the mm -hmm. education and guidelines, uh, a, a lot of men with low-risk cancer in Germany are still getting radical prostatectomies. Completely unnecessary. Mm. Uh, probably has no benefit whatsoever in terms of survival and obviously has all these mm. sexual and, and urinary side effects. Um, so instead of that, you know, that has the treatment has to be part of the screening program. In other words, you've been mm -hmm. diagnosed with cancer, so you're going to get treated as in part, you know, in the, whatever screening program is going to organize that. Because it's yeah. low-risk cancer, we're not going to treat you. Or because it's intermediate risk, you're going to have a discussion about what's going to happen. Or because it's high risk, we're going to refer you to this particular place. So, if you, you, you know, as I keep saying, you've either got to do it not at all or do it properly. And doing it properly is not just giving the PSA test. It's organizing what happens after that in terms of diagnostic workup, and if cancer is found, mm -hmm. how to treat it. Jenny, that was such an interesting interview. Thank you. Uh, I've written lots of things down to talk about, so can I kick us off? Um, Great. So... I'm always interested, this shared decision-making kind of came up a lot there, didn't it? And and I love that phrase that, you know, this is actually in, in this situation, an abdication of responsibility. We, we've, we've talked about it before, haven't we, where you've seen people, you know, the doctor says, well, you can have surgery or you can not have surgery. You know, it's up to you. And not really giving any information on, and, and I think that's exactly what we see everywhere i think in medicine mm -hmm. and and shared decision making is the reason why people think it's okay so i thought that was um 
very interesting. And then this idea of informed choice and, you know, almost that um, if if we recommend something strongly, I've, I've seen people do this when I edit articles, like say if it's, if it's a strong recommendation, it's almost like the, the patient doesn't have a choice. But if we if we recommend something or if a guideline recommends something weekly, then well that that's where you give the patient a choice. Which um, so it feels like we've got a lot wrong when it comes to shared decision making and um, how we um, how we offer patients choice. And I think this is a great example of of, of mm. where we're getting it wrong. I think that's an example of I guess a shared decision making purist would say well that isn't shared decision making but I, I think there's there's a discussion to be had though about the sort of limits of informed choice even like how informed does how informed you have to be to make an informed choice and I thought it was really interesting what um, Andrew was saying about you know um, we're not good at thinking ahead like what will we want in 10 years time 20 years time which mm. It comes up in other contexts in medicine, you know, particularly I'm thinking of doing Q-risk where you're talking about someone's, someone's 10-year risk of um, cardiovascular disease, which can, I mean, even that seems sort of fairly tangible, but I think it is hard to wrap your head wrap your head around that. So I, I sort of agree with you, Tom, there is this kind of fundamental maybe issue with how we kind of approach these things and the kind of assumptions about um what information we take on board, yeah. what are we considering? Um but like uh, just when being like honest and realistic about what really happens in a consultation, like you can quickly work out whether the patient is there because they've made their mind up. There's there's really nothing you can say to, yeah. to, to prevent this happening. Um or whether they're there to genuinely have a conversation about whether they ought to get a PSA test. Yeah. Um and for me nine times out of ten it's the former they they just want the PSA tests and there's no yeah do you, do you think then in those situations do you still go through you know the conversations about you know the accuracy of PSA what happens downstream because I, I I do try to only be only so I feel like I've fulfilled my like you know the informed choice side of things but I mean I'm not really trying to make sure they've taken that on board and I don't think the the patient in that scenario is that bothered either? Yeah. You know, they, they want their test. Yeah. It's almost like a, I'm going to just say this to cover myself so that in, if, if, it, if it does turn out to be positive and they get, you know, put the whole through cascade the, the, starts. Yeah, 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 exactly. Then, then I've done something. Um, but, but, but you do it more out of, um, duty than, than any kind of expectation that it's going to make a difference. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to convince anyone of anything. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I think there's the, the societal kind of, factors you know that the prostate cancer PSA testing is something that's kind of everywhere for, for men of a certain age and it's all on one side you, know, you should get a test you don't want to end up like this person and um I guess ultimately you don't want to die of prostate cancer do you so get a PSA test yeah well it's that classic thing that we see time and time again when we're talking about overdiagnosis, over treatment is that it's very easy to convey um a sort of success story from um, an early diagnosis of cancer. It's much harder to sort of talk about the anxiety, the side effects, the everything else that comes from um, treating something that would never have been a problem at all. It's a much more mm. kind of abstract concept. And we're so geared towards the kind of, you know, you're talking about the societal expectations. Everything is about, you know, prevention is better than cure and earlier is better than later. And I think PSA 
screening is one of those classic examples of where it, it can feel very difficult to convey those harms um, succinctly in a 10 minute consultation, particularly when someone has kind of made their mind up already. So that bit at the end where he said, um, you know, ask the patient, how would you feel about being diagnosed with a cancer that, that didn't need treating? Um, I think that the usual response you might expect from that is, well, how would I feel about being diagnosed with, a, you know, not being diagnosed with a cancer that did need treating? Can I have the test, please? <laughs> yeah. So it's, there are two sides to that. And again, unless you have the numbers to hand in your head or are able to give a some sort of um, sensible um, idea of the relative likelihoods of those two things happening, then I'm, I'm not sure you can really get very far with that either. Yeah. And also someone's own values and experiences has mm. so much bearing on that conversation as well in terms of you know if you've seen a friend of yours um I don't know go through metastatic prostate cancer no 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 amount of figures is going to change your mind you you've you've seen firsthand um and so yeah so it's really really um I think that's that's the challenge isn't it of informed in this informed choice approach is well how informed is it and how um how you know it's it's actually we're only having those conversations with the people that present to have those conversations in the first place i just think this is so i mean it's so interesting um when i was talking to andrew i was reflecting on how i was in practice in the us when the us pstf downgraded its recommendation against psa screening and the conversation essentially overnight just completely changed where, you know, there had been insufficient evidence, but a lot of people, including I think maybe some cancer societies were recommending PSA testing annually to then suddenly just actively discouraging it. Um, and so most of my conversations were actually with the goal of trying to, you know, really emphasize the harms. Um, and I don't know, I think saw many fewer people who were there with their minds made up. I'm coming to you for screening. I'm getting a screening and more people who were like, woohoo, I don't have to go get this test. Um, but you know, the outcomes across the U S and elsewhere have just really shown stark inequities in terms of who ended up getting testing or not and resulting in, you know, the, inequitable outcomes that we see now from um, death due to prostate cancer and more aggressive disease. Uh, I think we should have a, a bit of a shout out to our episode with Minna Johansson, because um, this is very relevant here, isn't it? So this is the, the time needed to treat. And the fact that, you know, well, this is a great example of where um, the policy is actually just adding an awful lot of workload to to GPs um, and taking away time that could be spent on other things, but but that seems to be un undervalued. And uh, if we didn't, you know, if we did have a screening system, actually, I think we would have a lot, a little bit more time as GPs to spend doing other things, which would be very welcome. Yeah, it's a good point. I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, Minna's uh, discussion with us came to mind when I was speaking with Andrew because you know, even you know, in in health systems where you know. Um, either where an informed choice or shared decision-making model is retained, you certainly have to have that conversation about whether PSA testing is appropriate given their individual preferences. 
in systems where you still have to have that discussion around whether to kind of be part of a national screening program, you still have to have that conversation. Um, and so it, it did make me think, you know, if, if actually we're thinking about time needed to treat, should we move away and really strongly restrict access to PSA testing, um, which is something that Andrew also said uh, as kind of what he thinks is maybe most appropriate now. So what we haven't quite gotten to yet, which Andrew also mentioned, is the part about treatment and treatment, according to um, Andrew and his colleagues, is something that has to be integrated into a comprehensive program if you're going to do a national PSA-based early detection program. So um, Elizabeth Mahes spoke with Sam Muriel when we were covering this issue. Sam is a GP and researcher on cancer diagnostic testing at the University of Exeter. And so we've picked up part of his interview with Elizabeth to share with you here. I think they're very right in saying that the, di the diagnostic testing for prostate cancer has clearly changed since the big PSA-based screening trials in Europe and America. So, you know, that relied on trust biopsy as the diagnostic test, which has a lot of limitations um, and led to misdiagnosis and overdiagnosis and risks for men. Now that we use pre-biopsy MRI for all men referred with suspected prostate cancer, whether that's from a PSA screening test or worrying symptoms or examination findings, whatever the reason, they all get the same diagnostic test, which reduces the chances of overdiagnosis because it's more sensitive for the clinically significant cancers. Um, and it also provides information for targeted biopsy for the urologist and radiologist that do the diagnostic testing to confirm diagnosis. So that has clearly changed. Mm. Um, and so that reduces risks for men, which is a big problem with PSA-based screening, um, is the follow-on testing. So that that has been proven. That's become the standard care in the NHS. Um, the other thing in the UK that they, they do make a point about is that we're, in this country, there's low rates of over-treatment. So mo the majority of men who are diagnosed with low-grade cancers, which you know, would be considered over-diagnosis, the rates of aggressive treatment, you know, surgery and radiotherapy and things for those men is lower than a lot of other countries. And it's something that urology departments get audited on and, and do focus on is trying to work with men to encourage them to take up active surveillance to sort of monitor their low-grade tumours which are unlikely to progress. So there's a few factors in the UK that mean that the, the risks and harms, the risks and benefits of PSA screening has probably changed. I think what's still unclear is by how much. Mm. And and how much you can associate that with screening, you know, all men. So you know, the data that they've relied upon for PCUK is um, trial-based data, and the real-world data is from men who've been referred with suspected prostate cancer. So you know, a screening program is applied to a, a whole population, you know, <laughs> and whereas the men that are being the data that they've relied on is 
higher risk men because they've already been referred. Um, so it's not quite as representative of, of a screening program. And, you know, in screening programs, there's so many other things to take into account. You know, there's, um, you know, equity of access for the whole population. There's capacity in the system for doing all these MRI scans and additional sort of investigations that would be needed if this was rolled out nationally. So um, that, you know, we, because MRIs come on relatively recently, in the UK we don't have that screening evidence yet. There is some published evidence from the Swedish group about they've incorporated a pre-biopsy MRI into their, their arm of the European screening trial and they've published some early data, which you know, is, is only sort of a few years follow-up. So I think that question remains unanswered. You know, the assumption from a lot of people is that that, you know, because the diagnostic testing is getting better and the risk of overdiagnosis and unnecessary biopsies is lower, that the, the balance has changed. But I think it's a bit unclear as to how much that's changed at this point, you know, right. until we get more real-world evidence to know. And when were the kind of changes for in the UK with this uh, the way that we kind of uh, diagnose prostate oh. cancer. When have those changes come into effect? How recent are they? Uh, so NICE guidance changed in 2019, um, and that's NICE guidance 131, so that's specifically for prostate cancer diagnosis. And from then, the recommendation is that all men referred with suspected prostate cancer, for whatever reason, should have or be offered an MRI before biopsy. Um, and that was based on... Published so the Promise trial was pub the results of the Promise trial published in 2017, right. and that was a UK wide trial comparing MRI before biopsy to standard biopsy techniques, and showed quite well that it was better at picking up the significant cancers. You could avoid biopsy relatively safely in a proportion of men, and there's been other European trials that have confirmed those results. So, so it is only the recent years um, the rollout of MRI is still happening. So it's not. As my understanding is it's not happening everywhere. It's mm. becoming the standard of care and cancer alliances are trying to roll it out. And PCUK have been doing freedom of information requests to trust to figure out how widely available prostate MRI is. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it, it will ultimately be what well, is the standard of care now and it, will, it should be available to all men you know, in the near future. Yeah. And as you say, this is obviously quite recent and Prostate Cancer UK are trying to see if you know, that guidance is being followed up everywhere. Um, hmm. So how how long, from like a research perspective, how long has to pass before then you can see what effect that has? Is that something you can talk to? Yeah, well, so, um, so I mean, providing good quality research evidence that a screening program incorporating MRI works for men on a population level takes you know, 10, 20 years. So mm. alongside the recent evidence PCUK published, they're also looking to try and fund a big UK-wide screening trial to look at this model and other, you know, innovations in prostate cancer testing. Um, but that evidence is going to take time to build, you know, and certainly the NSC would want to see higher-level evidence of benefit that could be applied across the population because... This is a big thing to commission. It's needed because you know, we still have lots of men being diagnosed in late stage and symptoms often don't present till late. Um, but yeah, in terms of generating that evidence, it's going to take a long time. Well, I think um, it's kind of like a, a, a good news story there. Like, I think in the UK, we have done 
pretty well actually and it and yeah I think I felt for a few years like more comfortable with prostate cancer screening because I know that MR you know MRI based um testing was was introduced very rapidly where, where I've been working um and so so let you know feeling less of an obligation to to go on about the, the risks because because I know that the the risks of, of over diagnosis over treatment in particular are, are, are lower so yeah I think we should kind of celebrate that a little bit but for the UK anyway or UK listeners if you're in Germany it sounds like it's slightly different I I had the same reaction to you I was pleasantly surprised to learn that um and also to understand that urology departments are being actively audited on these uh kind of indicators in terms of pre-biopsy MRI and active surveillance um although it did make me think about the part uh of Andrew's interview when he was you know talking to the GP and the anxiety levels of living with a cancer in your body even if you're being actively surveilled I know I personally <laughs> would not be able to handle that. Yeah, it's still very challenging, isn't it? And I think, I mean, this is slightly off off the track of what we're talking about, but like one of the standard things I talk about when um, we're um, discussing PSA testing with a patient is actually the accuracy of the PSA test itself, with, which none of this changes really. You know, um, according to the nice clinical knowledge summaries, you know, a false negative PSA test, they say about 15% of people with normal with a normal PSA level may have prostate cancer and 2% will have a high grade cancer. And then there's false positives as well, about 75%. We know this of people with a raised PSA will have a negative prostate biopsy. And so, well, I mean, that, that bit, that, that false positive may change, I guess, according to these MRI, but I, I don't know the sort of data on that. And I guess that's what we were waiting for is um, how does this change that risk? You can someone quantify how this changes that risk benefit sort of balance? And from what Sam is saying, it sounds like it will be some time. You know, there's he was he alluded to a Swedish study that's going on. Um, it'll be some time before we know that. So, I guess I guess it's a case of watch this space. Um, but maybe, yeah, I, d- I don't know if you've. Because because obviously it's relevant, isn't it, to the counselling, the informed choice that we're still still doing now, to know some of that, and I I don't know the data on that to kind of change really what I'm saying. I guess you can just say the biopsy is maybe a little bit more accurate than it has been in the past, but it's a bit vague. Can I share my observation about academics? Yeah, you know, it's amazing, isn't it, that you would start um, a piece of research that you know isn't going to be finished for like 15 or 20 years you know, properly and I just think you know good good on the academics for knowing what they what they want to do with their lives <laughs> I know these like long long future screening trials you know they take they take many years but I, yeah. I guess in practice we end up acting on the evidence much earlier than that don't we like we'll probably depending on what <laughs> comes out of Sweden uh, if there's early signs, we may adopt what's happening, and then you get the long-term follow-up later, and you're like, "Oh, we should do what we're doing, keep doing what we're doing, or stop what we're doing." So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, who knows? But yeah, I mean, the commitment and the foresight to be like, "I'm gonna, this is what I want to do. 
Yeah. So maybe academics are better at that, like thinking ahead to what they want to, where they'll be in 10, 20 years. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but it's such a good point now, Joy, because I'm sure there are, you know, more studies than we know about going on in terms of alternative diagnostic diagnostic tests uh, to replace and improve upon PSA. And whether that's a 50 cancer biomarker test or whether it is something, you know, really specific oh, to, um, to prostate cancer, then, you know, that may be coming down the pipe soon. Yeah. Yeah. Do we get a better initial screening test? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I wonder if, you know, as we've been having this conversation, I've been thinking like, you know, my my immediate response to prostate cancer becoming a sort of national nationally screened program is that there may be these benefits in terms of standardized inf- information for everybody, obviously, hopefully more equitable access, although that's, I guess, not guaranteed, um, and maybe more standard, standardized diagnostic pathways. But still, the worry is just about just mass like over diagnosis. Um, even even with these better tools um but maybe maybe there is uh i, I don't know the, the other thing that is is about risk based kind of a screening program and i don't know how how that would be implemented i don't know my my response to a national screening program is kind of one of deep skepticism but maybe something more targeted that actually does try and reach the people who are at increased risk you know whether that's through family history or their ethnicity or um, whatever. Well, it seemed to be that if you did a, a risk-based approach, then you would exclude almost everybody, like not almost everybody, but family history and uh, black ethnicity. Then everyone else doesn't get a, doesn't get invited. Do you think that will just lead to uproar? <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, the, the, it's a very different group who want to get the, the, the PSA tests. So, so I guess what one thing we, we've mentioned a couple of times is is because this is all about trying to find those people who do have a high grade, high risk prostate cancer, you know, that will die from it unless they receive treatment. Um, and I guess that that is that's the main argument for for having prostate cancer screening. Um, and it's very difficult to balance that against the, the all the other things we've been talking about today. Um, and I just always wonder, like, couldn't we explore a system that says, well, you tick a box and say, I would like to know, you know, do I have a, a high risk prostate cancer or not? Well, yeah, and actually, I'd rather not know if you if I did my PSA screen and somehow, you know, I had a low grade thing that needs some surveillance. I don't think there's probably much legs in that, but you know, could could we could we be a, be a bit more creative or <laughs> find some other ways of or even reclassifying sort of low-grade cancers to um, to sort of take away some of that um, burden that they carry. Yeah, I've I've heard that um, was being put forward for um, for in breast cancer circles. So the kind of really mm. low low-grade, I guess, ductal carcinoma in situ. Like, should they even be called cancers? Mm. And I know lots of people refer to like low-grade prostate cancers as kind of indolent lesions or you know whatever Mm. euphemism they want to say because cancer is such a you know you hear the word cancer uh and as a patient and you 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 obviously your mindset shifts towards you know it does induce that anxiety that worry and so maybe there are 
that maybe there are creative ways to you know do something with the nomenclature as you're saying or to or to get really good at the counseling um side of things and the information that's available us and to highlight all these risks and worries um because as you say at the end of the day there there is there are these people out there who there would be value in finding you know the ones who are at risk or or have these high grade cancers and i think that's obviously at, at the back of everyone's mind. It's the back of a patient's mind when they come in, but it's at the back of mm. our minds when we're, you know, when I'm giving my spiel, trying to talk about all the downsides of PSA testing. Actually, like, are you the one person who would benefit from this? So, um, I agree with you, Tom. Like, how how that that's I guess the, the name of this whole game, isn't it? How can we get better at doing this? Yeah, and really risk stratifying people based on the best science and the best information we have, so that we can have you know, the most informed conversations and try to encourage them to imagine, you know, what they would like in different scenarios. And that shouldn't all be on the shoulders of the GP. (laughs) Um, You know, having to, having those conversations, obviously that's a key part of general practice, but, you know, having the best tools to have those conversations, I think is something that's really important. And if there is a sort of a system that, can better serve patients, you know, whether that is through a sort of standardised programme, then then having that instead. Or chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where this is all heading, isn't mm. it? We'll just go, it will just be replaced by AI. So it's fine. Well, I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Thanks so much to Andrew and Sam for joining us for interviews. And thanks as always to Tom and Navjoy. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. And thanks, Navjoy. Thank you. See you next time. That's all from us for this week. See you next time. Bye for now. Bye.